What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things, we contemplate them, we turn them over in our minds, and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, we're not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. Today, we're going to talk about sin a little bit. Have you ever thought about what it would be to deal with sin minus God's grace? Now, before we get into the meat of the podcast, what I was, I was, Eric told Jonathan to get out of that building. Those of you that um, follow the Digital Bible Study Facebook page, the baptistry is getting uh, resurfaced. I have been a part of that. Uh, we did that at Bay, and uh, let me tell you something. It was rough. I don't see how he was in that building, and uh, I was worried about old Jonathan. So uh, maybe maybe we keep him in our prayers. <laughs> anyway, uh, so tonight we're going to talk about sin. Um, I did a podcast quite a while back now talking about... Um, Talking about the standard, I think maybe sometimes, as well-meaning as we are, we can conceptualize things wrong. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Now, listen, I'm, I'm not indicting people. I'm not – well, I'm, I'm trying not to anyway. It's not my goal. Um, I'm just I'm, – I'll be a little bit vulnerable. This is the way I conceptualize this for quite some time, and I, and I think it's inadequate – to really show the exceedingly sinful nature of sin, and it kind of lessens the problem of sin and cheapens the power of God's grace. And here's here's the here's the concept. Okay, God just wants us to do the best we can. We're gonna sin. Just do the best you can and let grace cover the rest. So the standard for the way Christians are to act is somewhere below perfection because nobody can be perfect, right? So why even try? Now, that person who believes that and explains God's grace in relation to sin has got a very good heart, and they trust in God. They're not going to go to hell, and they're not leading people to hell. I just think that maybe if we thought about this a little differently— we could speak words that are more in alignment with the way things uh, I believe actually are. So maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can relate to this. Now, I start. I talked about the standard for for God is absolute perfection, because that's really what it is. Think about that. Separate and apart from the grace of God. Anything you did that was a transgression of God's will would be a sentence to eternal damnation. If you only ever sinned one time in your life, that would be a sentence to eternal damnation. If all you ever did was say, you know what, the speed limit's 55, but because I desire to do so, I'm going to drive 65 regardless of what the law of the land says 
that would be a sin that would condemn your soul to hell. Think about that. That's that's how important sin is. You see, we, we have a law that we have to follow. I, I think, well, let me, I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But Galatians chapter 3, listen to this. For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them, that's the works of the law, shall live by them. So the Jews understood that if you're going to follow the law of Moses, and, and they, they, they had this ability to understand they didn't always act like it, they had this understanding that or they should they had enough information to come to the conclusion that it is not the works of the law that saves you it's your faith in God that saves you and God's standard for faithfulness is doing the works of the law that's why the just those who are justified shall live guided by the works of the law it is not the works of the law that save you. If you lick your finger and turn left and go to Romans chapter 4, um, we have, I, I use this as kind of like a juxtaposition of two men. Listen to it. This is verse 1. Uh, what shall we say that Abraham our father was found according, what then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him who works is the way or wages not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So what I have here is I have two men. We'll say they are 97 years old, and they both were baptized whenever they were 20 years old. They both have been the husbands of one wife. They Maybe they were both elders in the Lord's church, and they both gave of their means very liberally. They were there at church, quote-unquote, every time the door was open, and they didn't get caught up in any kind of scandals, uh, you know, no major, you know, no, no breaking of the law or anything like that. Both of them lived what we would call a good and righteous life. They fled ungodliness and worldly lust, and they lived soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. However, they are now dead. One is going to be ushered on angels' wings into paradise, and the other will go to torment. What is the difference? It's how they reckoned their works. It's how they reckoned the relationship between the works of the law and God's justification and God's grace. One considered himself to be righteous because he was doing everything that God commanded. The other considered himself righteous because he believed in Jesus and he loved God and he wanted to do what was required of him the best he could do. And he didn't trust in his works. He knew that he couldn't work and, and do anything 
to save himself. He knew he he knew that salvation was something that's gifted that that you cannot earn. So one trusted in his works, the other trusted in God. On the surface, they look exactly the same. Sin without God's grace looks like a man who's trying to earn his way into heaven by being a good person, but is exercising in futility. The standard of righteousness, according to God, is complete and total perfection. Separate and apart from God's grace, it is absolutely unachievable by human beings. And that's why we need God. That's why we need Jesus. Let's let's dive into this. Um, Romans chapter 4, there's a very interesting uh, verse in here. Um, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. The only thing that a law does is point out sin, points out a transgression. Think about... Think about going over to Europe, to the Autobahn. Do you know there's one thing that you can never be charged with driving on the Autobahn? And that is you can never be charged with breaking the speed limit. You can never be charged with that particular infraction. Why is that? Because there is no law. There's no law. It's, just, it's an open road and you can drive it as fast as you want to drive it. You can, drive, you, want, you can drive it as fast as your car will go. There's no law. You see, it's not, it's not inherently sinful to drive 65 miles an hour. Evidently, it is an infraction of the law to drive 65 whenever the speed limit is 55. The only thing a law does is condemn in relation to salvation. You see, this law is a guidepost. It's a guidebook. It's a way we partake of the divine nature. I said this in a podcast not too long back. I don't recommend that you do this, but if you want to take on Tony's nature, if you want to talk like me, if you want to act like me, if you want to even walk like me, you have to... Read the same stuff that I read. You got to do the same stuff that I do, and you got to listen to me. And then you will you will take on my nature. You will know me well enough to take on my nature. Well, how do we take on the divine nature? Well, let's go to Second Peter and we'll read it. And it's very easy to ascertain that it is it is through the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um. Chapter 1 of Second Peter, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us by glory and virtue, by which you have but by which have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world through lust. How do we escape that corruption that's through lust? Well, we sow to the spirit. We don't sow to the flesh. 
we destroy that old man of sin and we're raised again to walk in newness of life. How do we do that? Well, Colossians 3, if you then be risen with him, set your affection on those things that the, which are above, where Christ setteth at the right hand of God. Well, you're dead, but in your life is hid with God in Christ. That's how we partake of the divine nature. So how do we achieve what I just said? You look at the book. You look at the law. You give diligence and add to your faith all of these things. And eventually, the very last one, um, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. That's agape love. He who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. Once you've added all of these things, once you've added rather to your faith all of these things, you have fully self-actualized as a man, a woman, a God, and you now are fully self-actualized people of faith. You have been made partakers of the fullness of the divine nature here on earth. Now, First John chapter 3, we do not yet know what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And in everybody that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So that's still that, that pure nature of Jesus. We're partaking of that by following what Jesus wants us to do. We're living by faith. We've been justified. And now that we are justified, we are going to live by the things that are written in the law of Christ, and that is going to keep us within the borders of the kingdom, and it is the borders of the kingdom inside those borders where are the saved, the just, which is how we can say the just shall live by faith. Faith is simply action you take based on what you believe. Well, what do you believe? I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that nothing I can do can ever wash one sin away from me. No matter how many animals I bring to an altar, and no matter how many times, no, no matter how many gallons of blood is spilt by a priest, not one sin will ever be forgiven. So if I want to be right with God, if I want to live soberly, righteously, and godly, I add to my faith all of these things in Second Peter. I have to understand that God's expectation is for me to be perfectly sinless. And Jesus came so that when I'm not perfectly sinless, he has been tempted in all points like as I have been, and he can tell the Father, look, I've been there. He's covered. He lived the best he could. He walked in the light, and he has fellowship with you because my blood has cleansed him. There's nothing with which we can charge him because he's lived by faith commensurate with the law that you've given all of this kind of works together. It's systemic. Now, I've gotten way ahead of myself and totally diverted from the flow of the podcast that I had planned, so we'll see if we can get this back some. Back to Romans 4. Um, the law brings about wrath. We know when we're displeasing to God 
because we have a law that's easily ascertained. One infraction of that law, separate and apart from grace, means we have no hope. I read a book by Brandon Sanderson, and now I can't think of the I can't think of the name of it. It was his very first complete novel. It's a standalone novel, and I cannot think of it. But there there's this race of people that were magic users. And Brandon Sanderson is really known for his fantasy novels uh, coming up with magic systems. He comes he's come up with some very clever magic systems in his um, in his universe that he writes in. But um, this particular magic system had to do with drawing runes and stuff like that in the air. And um, something happened to the world that they lived in. And these, this race of people that under, undergone, or that underwent, I suppose, a transformation, they only transformed halfway. And they were immortal, but they also couldn't heal. So if you're one of these people who are these magic users of this particular fantasy world, if you stubbed your toe, it stayed sore. That, like that was your existence from here on out. You stubbed your toe, it kept hurting. If you were working in the field and you cut yourself with a knife, like let's say you were harvesting grain and you cut yourself with the with the with a knife or something, it never healed and you always dealt with that. Let's say if you did something really bad like break a bone, it never healed. You always had to had to deal with that. Whatever wound you received, whatever hurt happened to your physical body it never ever healed and that was your existence you also could never die i thought wow that's clever anyway spoiler warning uh the hero comes along figures out what the problem is and saves everybody now think about your spiritual life without grace everything that you do in the flesh that's sinful, you carry with you forever. You can never die. You can never heal. You can never know a good existence from a just elantris. Thank you very much. Um, you can never, um, you can never know. You can never know what it means to be whole. That, that, that's why this whole idea of, of imputed righteousness. Look, 1 John chapter 3, don't let anybody deceive you. If you do righteousness, you are righteous, even as Jesus is righteous. Our righteousness is not imputed unto us because we live under this wonderful covenant that has a sacrifice adequate enough to completely change us and take away every bit of the sin, pain, and degradation that we have experienced. We can be those vessels of dishonor, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God Almighty personified in the very essence and person of Jesus can change us from the vessels of dishonor to the vessels of honor. You see, without, without God's grace, 
the standard is perfection. And if you do so much as even drive 45 or, or, or 55 and a 45, you've lost your eternal reward. And I don't know about you, but I committed sin before I started driving. So I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even have had a chance. Like it just happened so quick. Now, that sounds dire and that sounds bad. If that's the case, I, I, I kind of put myself in the shoes of the apostles in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus sets the record straight on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And they say, well, if that's the case with the man, then it's better not to even marry. And then Jesus explained to him, yeah, in certain situations, that's right. You know, it, it's there's eunuchs that are, that, are, that are eunuchs from birth. There are eunuchs that are eunuchs by choice, and there's eunuchs for the kingdom. It may be that you need to be a eunuch if you can't handle this idea of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So I think about this. When I think about what sin is like without God's grace, well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better not to even, like, how do you even, like, if, if, you, if you're not right and you can't get right, and if you ever get right, you can't stay right, what's the purpose? Which I think a lot of people are pushed into that by this teaching that if you do make a mistake, you jump from saved to lost, and then you got to pray, and you go back from lost to saved, and then you make another mistake, and you go back from saved to lost. I don't think that's what First John teaches at all. I think Romans chapter 8 rings true. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you're living by faith, if you're living according to the law, which the just shall live by, by which the just shall live, then there's no condemnation for you. Hell isn't real for you. You're walking in the light as he is in the light. You have fellowship with God, and the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. You'll never have to consider yourself to be a sinner ever again. You're going to slip, trip, and fall, but you stay in the blood. You keep on walking. You keep on keeping on. That's the remedy to this dire strait that humanity was in before Jesus. You know, Abraham, it was counted unto him for righteousness. The Greek word there is logizomai. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. The Greek word there is logizomai. And that's a that's like an accounting term. Let me give you an illustration. If if Abraham it's counted unto him for righteousness. He died before the sacrifice of Christ. He died still carrying sin debt. And he's, he's called a friend of God. And God wasn't going to thwart his own justice or pervert his own justice and forgive him whenever there wasn't an adequate sacrifice. Jesus hadn't come yet. So when Abraham died, he died with a sin debt. Go read Faith Hall of Fame. Abraham is in paradise. Abraham died in faith, therefore he's in paradise. How could that be? Well, the way we would conceptualize it, you have to use your imagination. 
Abraham died and went to paradise, and now there's an asterisk by his name, which means he has a sin debt, but that asterisk means that somebody's going to come along at a later date and pay that sin debt. That's why it was counted unto him as righteousness. That's the way everybody before Jesus died on the cross who died in faith, they'd have had an asterisk by their name because they died with the sin debt. Because that's how serious sin is. Millions, billions maybe, gallons of blood flowed through the temple year by year. Not billions per year, but from the whole time the temple was started, billions of gallons of blood probably flowed through that temple. Not one sin was washed away. There was only atonement. There was forgiveness in prospect of the sacrifice that can make one just. Now, somebody under the new covenant, I hope it doesn't happen for a long time, but let's say I die. When I go to paradise, there's not going to be an asterisk by my name because I'm not going to have any sin debt whatsoever because I am righteous as Jesus was righteous. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. So the remedy to this problem of sin and a proper understanding that the standard is perfection and anything less than perfection means that we are dirty and need cleansed, so we have to rely on the blood of Jesus. That seems pretty, pretty rough. It seems pretty hopeless. It seems pretty hard to deal with. It's a hard pill to swallow. So how do I, how do I combat that feeling of being overwhelmed? I understand the proper. I have proper understanding of the relationship of God's grace. To his people. And once God has you, he will by no means easily let you go. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 8. Let's read the last. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I went on into verse 9 because I got a little excited. Or chapter 9. But the point is this. Once God has you, there's nothing that can pluck you out of his hand. You, of your own volition, of your own free will, have to turn around and leave. That's how I keep from getting overwhelmed at the standard that God expects me to live up to. God expects me to live up to perfection, and anything less than perfection is damnable. Therefore, I trust in the blood of Jesus. You know, that's why I'm not as hard on people as some others. It takes a lot for me to break fellowship with somebody. And it's because I don't want to be judged very harshly on the day of judgment. I got this verse here in Matthew chapter 7. Oh man, people read it all the time. 
and I think they misunderstand what it means. A lot of times they'll they'll quote it and they'll say, that gives me a license to do whatever I want to do without you saying anything to me. Well, that's not exactly true. Listen to it. Judge not that you be not judged. For with, that word for, that means because. Because with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I don't want to be judged very harshly on the day of judgment. I don't want to be judged any more harshly than God Almighty shall judge me. I know the judge of all the earth is going to do right. I am not the judge of all the earth. Therefore, my judgment is not going to always be right. So I don't want to judge somebody with a wrong judgment and then have to be judged by that same level of judgment and measure of judgment on the day of judgment. For instance, in the area of scruple, don't take this the wrong way. I don't really care what you do. You'll, you'll, you'll very rarely hear me saying anything about what you do. Like as a gospel preacher, when I go visiting people, I don't go poking around in the refrigerator. I don't go poking around in their drawers and their cabinets. Whatever they do is between them and God. Now that doesn't mean we don't hold each other up to a standard. But without God's grace... Any little bitty infraction that you can think of is damnable. Evidently, with the blood of Jesus, God can overlook it. So if I see one of my brethren and there's a infraction that they're caught up in, if it's questionable at all, I'm going to observe the Passover and build a snowman. And by that, I mean let it go. I think about we're coming up on this holiday season. Man, people bicker and fight over celebration of Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and Halloween and birthdays and this, that, and the other. Like, man, you just order your life the way you think you need to order it, and I'll order mine the way I think I need to order it. And quite frankly, I don't care if your house looks like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I don't care if your house looks like Disneyland or the Opryland. Y'all remember whenever they used to decorate the Opryland Hotel? Do they still do that? That was a big deal for us to go to Nashville, Tennessee in Christmas time and see all that at the Opryland Hotel. What is it to me if you decorate your house up like that in December? In fact, December 25th is a Sunday this year, I believe. I think there's some of my brethren that think we probably can't worship God on December 25th. It's too much like celebrating Christmas. I'll quit. I'll quit. I'll quit now. We don't probably don't need to go down that road. My point is this. We cannot think of sin any less than what it is. And if we think of sin as the egregious thing that it is, then I think we'll have a better appreciation for God's grace. Remember, if you metaphorically so much as stub your toe outside of God's grace, you're condemned to an eternity in hell. 
with God's grace, that isn't the case. With God's grace, oh man, you can do a lot of bad things. You can't leave the fold and go so far that you cannot come back. So what is the standard that God expects us to live up to? The standard of perfection. God is love and he knows we're going to have trouble. So we have this advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, that when we do sin, he is the satisfaction, the propitiation for that sin. All right, now let's talk about in the in the time remaining um, some... Uh, some practical things that we can consider uh, that will help us not be a slave to sin. Uh, Keith Moser, and we're not supposed to quote Keith Moser from our notes, but I didn't take notes. No, I did take notes, but I didn't, I didn't write this down so I can quote him. He said some stuff in class about, um, he said some, <laughs> I guess there's some funny, hold on, let me get, let me get some of these comments. Uh, let me go all the way back. All right, good to see. I didn't, I didn't even say hello. I wanted, I guess I wanted to get in and talk about this. Good to see everybody. Um, okay, Deb about about Operaland. They do. We went one year. Uh, they do it up pretty good. Cool beans, Deb. Connie says, yeah, they do. If you don't like it, don't do any of it. Yes, it's Sunday this year. Yes, yeah, you was talking uh, about what I was saying. Yeah, Operaland is still decorated to the nines. Uh, Jewel Pender agreed with me on something, 100% exactly. And she says, I'm right there with you about Christmas being on Sunday. I'm going to hush as well. And uh, uh, yes, Christine Woodall, there is a difference between deliberate sin and stumbling. There sure is. Um, in fact, Paul mitigates this pretty well. Romans chapter 6, he says, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Let me tell you what these Jews, they had this notion that um, since God was able to show grace and forgive them of sins, that the more they sinned, the more God was glorified. Therefore, how could he condemn them for glorifying him? And Paul deals with that in Romans. Oh, that's stupid. That's crazy. Now, he, he talks about in Romans chapter 5 the remedy for sin and... Verse 20 of chapter 5, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. There's your first key right there. Walk in newness of life. You have to reckon some things, folks. Whenever you're in Christ, you have to reckon that I have a brand new life and I'm going to lead a life commensurate 
with my new lease on life. How many times have you ever known someone who's had a brush with death and they change fundamentally at their core their philosophy of living? Sometimes it's for the worse. Sometimes it makes them go to a dark place. A lot of times it's for the better. Sometimes a good old brush with death, a good old close call, will soften the old hard heart of a sinner that you've been trying to work with. Never underestimate the power of getting a Bible study in a funeral home. Now, don't don't be dumb with it. Don't don't hurt somebody, as it were. But certainly something to think about. All right, verse five. For if we ha- if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this. Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So you reckon that you have a new lease on life, and you reckon that you are liberated from the power of sin. Sin has no more power over you. Oh, it still has power over you, and that you probably are going to be still addicted to whatever choice drug you had. You're probably going to have a a desire in your flesh. But what you have done has set yourself up for success in that you now have a goal and you are not listing lazily to and fro in this world as a ship that has become unmoored and has drifted off to sea with no one at the helm. Reckon yourself to have a brand new life and reckon yourself to be freed from sin. Number seven. For he who has died, verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So reckon yourselves freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. So you you reckon yourself to be have a new lease on life, that you're dead and freed or that you're dead to sin, you're freed from sin, and you are you are no longer going to obey the lust of your flesh. You are letting something else reign in your mortal body. How do I do this? Verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present your instruments, present yourselves, to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, if you lived a life of sin, hanging out at the bars, at the pool halls, this, that, and the other, and now you're baptized into Christ, what do you do? All of that time you're hanging around in the bars and the pool halls, hang out with the brethren. Hang out with people that are going to get you to where you want to go. All of that time you spent wasting, give it to God. 
Remember the, the verse in Ephesians, redeeming the time? What does it mean to redeem the time? It meant that before you were baptized, you were wasting God's time. Now that you're baptized, you need to make up for lost time. That's what that's what this is that's what this is talking about here. It's not just that you stop sinning. You have to start living. When you when you when you repent, you change your mind. Then you turn to God that's in the watery graves of baptism. Now you have to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. In fact, that's the book of Acts. 26, 26, 20, I think. Yeah, I'm going to read verse 19 because it's the sentence. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. You know, you die to your sin. That's repentance. You've changed your mind. Now you turn to God. That's in the watery grave of baptism. But now you've got to live. So don't lend your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but consider yourself as you are dead to sin and alive to God. And you present your members as instruments to righteousness. You quit wasting God's time. Don't waste any more time. Each minute of the Christian life must be lived obediently. That's almost exactly the same thing, but a little different, as what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. The just shall live by faith. The just also lives by the works of the law. Don't waste God's time. Live the way he wants you to live. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, let me clear something up here. That doesn't mean that Christians are not under a law. Law and grace here is a juxtaposition of the law of Moses versus the covenant of Christ. Okay? We are obviously under the law of Christ. James calls it the perfect law of liberty, which is an oxymoron. It's a paradox. Uh, a, a law of freedom is a paradoxical statement. Two things that are seemingly op opposed to one another. Um, and then the perfect law of liberty. What else? What else? What else? Come on, Tony. Uh, Galatians 6, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Anybody that says Christians are not under a law is feeding you a line of malarkey. We have to define our terms, figure out what we're talking about here. But the idea, these Christians to whom Paul was writing the book of Romans, he was telling them, look, you're no longer under that law of Moses. You're under the law of Christ. You're under grace. The, these these people in the long ago, these people, well, from our perspective of the long ago, they didn't have it like you people under the New Covenant have it. Moses didn't have it like you have it. Aaron didn't have it like you have it. 
Zacharias and Elizabeth. Although they kept all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord and they were blameless, they didn't have it like you have it. They're covered by grace in the moment. They're justified. They've been made just as if they never ever sinned. Excuse me, you, you have been made just as if you've never ever sinned. They have not experienced that. I couldn't imagine having to deal with the sin problem without God's grace. We are under a new dispensation of time, and that is exactly correct. Incidentally, Christine Woodall, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel system is whereby, or, or is is where is is how I live. I leave ungodliness with worldly lust, and I live soberly, righteously, and godly, and I do that by what the grace of God teaches me. And I love this, verse sixteen. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness and holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And obviously, when you're slaves to righteousness, you are free in regards to sin. That's the idea. The point is, you're going to be bound to something and somebody. So you cannot do anything to alleviate the sinful nature of sin, the the sinful consequ- or the consequences of sin, of living sinful. But if you live a life commensurate with the law of Christ, being covered in his blood, being delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son, you're going to reckon yourself dead to sin. You're going to reckon yourself freed from its consequences. And you're going to reckon yourself as an instrument of righteousness. It's not just that you're going to stop doing all these things you shouldn't have done. That creates a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. If you're an alcoholic and you stop drinking alcohol, if you don't fill that void with something healthy, then something unhealthy is going to fill it. You know, that's why people who quit smoking, a lot of times they gain 100 pounds because They just go from addicted to tobacco to addicted to food. 
you got to fill it with something healthy. Lend your instruments, lend your members as instruments of righteousness. Very practical, practical information. And this is this is from a sermon that Keith Moser preached that I kind of developed. Uh, the title of which is Christians need to get out of the sin business. We do not need to excuse sin. And that's one of the issues with this idea of thinking, well, God just wants us to live the best we can we can, and Jesus' grace covers the rest. I don't like conceptualizing it like that because that means we excuse a certain amount of sin. We cannot excuse any sin. We just have to trust in the grace of God to wash away that sin. Because if we go excusing a little bit of sin, it's a whole lot easier to excuse a lot of sin. Unmerited favor. You know, I wonder, and Christine, don't take this wrong way. I'm not, I'm just, this is just, this is cogitations. This is one of my cogitations. I wonder if we use that phrase wrong, unmerited favor. Favor Favor is unmerited. Maybe. I need to think about that. I think about grace. I've heard people say, well, grace is unmerited favor. I thought favor by its very nature was unmerited. Like showing favoritism to one person over the other. It's not merited, or is it? I don't know. Something to think about. All right, I'm done there. i, I got to flesh that out some more before I talk any about it. Um in the book, the, the book of Titus tells us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Absolutely. And, um, of course, Christine said that's right, Joel. Let me read this from Scott. Um, be strong, you therefore, my son. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How was Timothy and how are we to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? My point is many people, even in the church, treat oh, hold on, treat grace like a tube of whiteout. They think they can live in particular sin, and they think grace is going to take over and white out their sin. Wherein, wherein for should we sin the more that grace may abound, as you stated earlier, God forbid. I think this was a voice to text. But Timothy and everybody who lives faithful in Christ grows in Christ, and therefore it grows in the grace by being Christ-like. Oh, let me roll this up. In their everyday, by being Christ-like in their everyday walk, in their grace in that for grace covers a multitude of sin, but we must walk according to his will and continuing fellowship with him in order that grace to be strengthened in us. Absolutely. Um, undeserved, Christine said. Christine, I shouldn't have said anything without fleshing that out. I should have, I should have, I'll talk about that in a podcast one day about uh, the difference between grace, mercy, and uh, and all that good stuff. Um, but anyway, good stuff though. And we as believers, we as believers should know that we are only free to do what is consistent with the character of God. That's exactly it, Jewel. Very good. And Deb Hibbert says unmerited favor, perhaps undue goodwill. Uh, thankful we have it. Yeah, like I said, I, let me, I tell you what. Let me do something real quick. 
um, let me go to where I wrote this. Let me go to where I wrote this article and see if I can't flesh this out. Seeing this has got a got a couple of comments here. All right, bear with me. Yeah, mercy and grace. All right, mercy and grace. Let me get this where I can actually read it. All right. Have you ever sat down during a quiet moment uh, and contemplated the grace and mercy of God? It is such an interesting and uplifting thought to meditate upon the mercy and grace of Almighty God and why I am allowed to sit and contemplate about the deep things of the universe is such a privilege that words cannot articulate the honor. Let's discuss some of these thoughts. So grace and mercy defined. So grace is favor, not unmerited favor. Unmerited favor is really just favor. If favor is merited, then it becomes a wage. Romans 4, 1 through 4. Think about grace in this way. Grace is God giving us a gift that we did not deserve and did not cost us anything. God showed grace to the children of Israel in that he gave into their hands Jericho. Now, that doesn't mean that Joshua and the children of Israel didn't have to do anything to take advantage of that grace. They had specific instructions for obtaining the benefit of the grace offered by God. Numerous examples of this formula can be cited, the greatest of which is the grace that has appeared unto mankind, Titus 2.11. There has been a way prepared because of the grace of God, and man has specific instructions concerning how that grace be multiplied unto him. 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3. Mercy is a little different. As grace is getting something that we don't deserve, mercy is not getting something that we do deserve. That which is deserved is a negative consequence of our own actions or the actions of others. Relating to God and man's salvation, mercy is not receiving a negative consequences negative consequence of our own actions in relation to living life on this earth. So, simply put, mercy is not getting the negative consequences we deserve, and grace is receiving something positive that we did not earn or observe. And then we have the rest of the article, but that's the that's the point of interest there. So, I may be thinking too deeply about it. I may be overly pedantic, but when I think of unmerited favor, I'm like, well, then it's not favor. It's just it's just a wage. Like if I say, hey, can you do me a favor and, and give me 400 bucks? If you give me 400 bucks, that's favor and it's not merited. It's just favor. But if you say, well, I'll give you 400 bucks, but you got to work 40 hours at $10 an hour, then you really haven't done me a favor. I have earned my money. And that's kind of what I was coming from. So again, Probably I'm being over pedantic, overly pedantic. That's just that's just me. So you can you can you can take that or leave that as you will. Um, but anyway, so hopefully, and I think I'm done. I've I've got some more material here, but I think I've got the point across. If we had to deal with our own sin problem, it would be absolutely hopeless. Okay, hopeless. One little bitty, little, little bitty infraction. There's a game that I play called Elden Ring, and there's a guy that just, he, he finally did a full run through all bosses, all enemies, no hit taken, none whatsoever. And 
he would practice for this and practice for this and practice for this. And it's really interesting. You would think that you would get all the easy enemies out of the way first. He said, that's not how you do it. He said, you start with the hardest enemies first because they're the most difficult to beat without taking a hit. And I'm like, well, that makes sense to me now that I think about it. And he said, what you do is you start with the hardest enemies, and if you can get through three or four of the hardest enemies without taking a hit, you think, well, this might be the run. And he said, when I finally made the run, I did three or four of those really, really hard enemies. I didn't take a hit. So he's like, I'm going to commit to this, and we're going to see. But think about that. One little old bitty hit in a huge video game like that would cause you to have to start all over. You'd lose every bit of your progress. The pro- and, and that's kind of like functioning in this life without grace. If you're trying to live a life of righteousness sans the grace of God, then you're like trying to make a full run through with zero hits. The problem is you only get one shot and you don't know what's coming. That's hard. I would say it's so close to impossible that it might as well be impossible. That's why we have the grace of God. We trust in his grace. Our standard is perfection. Anything less is damnable. But God be thanked in that while we were yet sinners, God commended his love for us and sent his son to die on the cross so that we might spend an eternity with him. And I hope something I've said here tonight has made you appreciate that just a little bit more than you already do. And I know you do very much. All right. Oh, thank you so much, Christine Woodall. I, I knew you. I, I, it's, I'm comfortable enough with you. I knew you wouldn't have thought anything of that. And I hope maybe, even though I'm a little pedantic or overly pedantic, maybe, I don't know, maybe we poured some cement to our foundation. It's like eternal life. It can't, whoops. It's like eternal life. It can't be earned, nor anything, nor, nor something we can pay back. That's right. Oof. All right. Well, guys, I really appreciate you. I appreciate your comments. Remember, be the algorithm. Share this, share this, share this. Consider supporting me as a podcaster at www.patreon.com forward slash near churches. I think you can also buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com. Um, if you're listening to this on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio, um, the show notes, you'll be able to go in there and see how to support me. Be sure and support digitalbiblestudy.org. Uh, Rising Tide raises all ships, and we need to get them folks some really good support so we can keep going with this and we can add more speakers and and, and give you more value for your, for your uh, time. And uh, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, I'm not going to start saying good night to everybody because uh, I'll leave somebody out. So good night to you all. This has been Tony Brewer with Cogitations, powered by digitalbiblestudy.org, and we will catch you on the flip side.